Good evening, everyone. It's nice to see all your faces after another wonderful day of a little bit of awareness and acceptance. What I'd like to speak about tonight is just one thing that can get in the way of this practice. There's kind of a flavor of story that you might recognize or you might be able to relate to. And I want to speak about how to navigate it and also to um, connect it to some other important aspects about, about this path. I'd like to begin, though, by uh, sharing with you a description, a description actually of a, you could say, an Indian state by the name of uh, the late Neem Karoli Baba. And the reason I want to share it with you is, is I feel like it gives a little bit of a feeling of, of the direction that this practice can go in. And not that we're going to be exactly like him or be able to embody something like this, but I do feel like the simple practice that we're doing, simply being aware and accepting, moves in this direction. And this was written by one of his students, Larry Brilliant. Neem Karoli Baba, I should mention also in this, is he's also known as uh, Maharaji. This is what his student says about him. He begins, he says, How do I explain who Maharaji was and how he did what he did? I don't have any expla- explanation. Maybe it was his love of God. I can't explain who he was. I can almost begin to understand how he loved everybody. I mean, that was his job. He was a saint. Saints are supposed to love everybody. But that's not what always staggered me. Not that he loved everybody, but that when I was sitting in front of him, I loved everybody. That was the hardest thing for me to understand, how he could so totally transform the spirit of people who were with him and bring out not just the best in us, but something that wasn't even in us, that we didn't know. I don't think any of us were ever as good or as pure or as loving in our whole lives as we were when we were sitting in front of him. Striking, don't you think? Can you imagine being in front of a person like that? I share this with you not so that we go out and try to find somebody like that to be with, but rather so that we can begin to embody just a little bit of that, to have a a kind of attention and kindness or awareness and acceptance towards others and towards our experience that we can begin to open up this space, not only for ourselves, but for others, even if it's in a small way. I think by now on this retreat, you might have noticed that this simple practice of awareness and acceptance is not always so easy. Anyone noticed that yet? Okay, so a few of you have. I feel that one of the stories that can uh, get in the way or begin to complicate or entangle up 
and complicate this, this practice of awareness and acceptance is this story, which I'm going to put under this, this broader umbrella of having this quality of a sense of lack. So that how this story can um, begin to arise is this feeling, this underlying feeling that I'm not good enough. Or it can take the, the form of something's wrong with me. We might see it in different ways. I should be able to be more mindful than this. I should be able to cultivate a lot more concentration than I have been already. This feeling of anger or fear or sadness, it's an actually um, an indication that, that something's missing from me, that I'm lacking, that I'm kind of bad, that I'm messed up. Or I start to feel unpleasant sensations. Oh, oh, wow, this really shouldn't be happening. Oh, I must be doing something wrong here. Or it's that, that, that judging that can arise. That mind, that, that story in our minds that's always telling us what a bad job that we're doing, what a bad person that we are. Have you noticed this? Have you noticed it in your meditation? Do you notice it in your life? Unfortunately, it's an all too common story, especially within this cultural context. And so I want to speak about a little bit about the possible roots of this and also how do we begin to address this. And some things that you might want to add to your practice that that might be able to... um, deal with this in, in different ways. Actually, before that, I, I want to um, also give one more description of this. And this can be tricky to understand, but I think it's important because I feel like it can really fuel our practice. Sometimes we engage in practice so that I can become a better person. So I have this sense of lack. I'm no good. So maybe I'll take up meditation and then I'll become a better person. And and I want to point out, there's nothing wrong with having the aspiration to be kinder or more mindful or more compassionate. Where it gets complicated is if I'm doing that in order to try to fill this hole that I feel in my life because I'm lacking something. And so I engage in meditation to help ameliorate this feeling of lack. Is this making sense? This distinction is important. We can have the aspiration, but it's important to see that we could be fueling it by this unskillful motive. And I'll come back to that. And I want to be pointing out that this practice is actually different than, than trying to become someone or something, to try to fulfill or try to get rid of this feeling or this sense of lack. But it, 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 I think it's, it's pervasive. Mark Epstein has this theory, which I think is compelling, where he tries to um, give us a sense of how we might have been given this, inherited this from our family and our society. He speaks about how we're brought up. And many times when we're being brought up, a lot of times what gets reinforced are the things that we accomplish. 
So we begin to walk. Oh, you're such a great baby. You, you, you learned how to walk. You, you begin to talk. And there's another accomplishment. You've succeeded at something. And that is so wonderful. You are a great child. And it continues. We get the good grades in school and we get, we get the, the pat on the back for that. And what begins to happen is that our sense of self and our sense of lovableness gets attached to what we accomplish. Again, I want to point out there's nothing wrong with reinforcing succeeding at things, but when it becomes so primary and basic that it gets entangled with our worthiness, then that's a, that's a big setup for suffering. Why is that? Because what can happen is if I'm not succeeding at something or accomplishing something, that the, then the feedback loop is there's something wrong with me and I am not lovable. And then I get on this track that I always have to be doing something more in order to be okay. Have you noticed this in your life? You must. If you're here at this retreat, it probably means that you've become somewhat successful in this society. The only way to become somewhat successful in this society is probably to buy into that on some level. If you're living on the street, there might be a little more hope for you, but <laughs> can you relate to this? I am worthy because of what I do, not because of who I am, but because of what I do. That's the question we ask each other when we meet each other. So what do you do? In Nepal, the most fascinating thing is, is you would never ask somebody that. Their whole way of relating is different. And I, I don't want to set up Nepal as this ideal of how we should be. It's just that their problems are different than our problems, at least in, uh, on this level. Of course, that's changing as Nepal gets modernized. But I just want to point out some things that, that gives this, this different feeling. For them, it's all centered around family. So, so what is valued is family, not accomplishment. So when you meet somebody in Nepal, they ask you about your family. They ask you if you're married or how many children you have, and they want to talk about family. A lot of times when family is emphasized, a lot of times there can be a much better sense of a lovable sense of self. In Nepal, for example, also when you meet a stranger, like if I were to meet somebody and I was to ask somebody a question that's uh, a woman that's a little bit younger than me, I would address her as my younger sister. Or a man that's a little bit older than me would be my older brother. Or much older than me, my father. I would be using these ways of addressing people, even to strangers. Because family, family is, is at the basis of their society. That's not at the basis of our society as much. It's accomplishment, success. That's why our economic system is, is thriving so much. So this happens, this sense of lack drives us on an individual level. But it not only drives us on an individual level, it drives us on a collective level. And this is important to see as well. Actually, there's a, a writer by the name of David Loy who speaks a, 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 about this very eloquently. He points out and he, he gets us to see that this is happening definitely on the, the, the collective level. For example, let me give some examples of this. Have you noticed in this country that we can never be safe enough? 
We're always lacking in that sense. We always have to be safer from all of those things out there. For example, with terrorism. We can never be safe enough. And it's gotten to such extremes, this is a statistic from 2004, to such an extreme that our military budget is about equal to the military budget of the rest of the world. I think there's something wrong. He contends that it's based on this sense of lack, which I think is a compelling argument for that. We're never safe enough if you look at our prison systems. The proportion of our population that's in prison is greater than any other country in the world. Sense of lack. We can never be safe enough. We all know about consumerism. We can never have enough. We can never consume enough. We always need more. Corporations are built on this. They have to report a quarterly earning every single quarter. If not, then they're doing poorly. They always have to be earning more and more and more. Do you see how this can be how this is set up on this sense of lack? Always needing more. And of course the misery that can come from that. The way this is spoken about in Buddhism also is uh, this activity of becoming. When I feel like I lack something, I need to become something else than what I am right now. And sometimes we engage in uh, our practice with this fueling it. And I want to be clear that we're, we're actually inviting you to engage in something different. We're, we're not saying that you... Um, are lacking something, you're not a very good person, so, so therefore you have to become another person. We're actually saying, just cultivate awareness and acceptance. That's all it is. It's much simpler than that story. But this activity can get intertwined in this. So one story of becoming. I think this, this happened early on in my Zen practice. I was ordained for maybe about a year. And... Uh, I was practicing because I wanted to become other than who I was. I wanted to be perfect. I wanted to be invulnerable. I wanted to be awake, and that's what awakening meant to me, that I could get rid of my imperfections. And probably the worst combination is, is bringing this impulse for becoming, I'm going to call it, or this impulse for perfection, and combining it with Rinzai Zen, with the Zen master... <laughs> from pre-World War II Japan. It's like mixing baking soda and vinegar. It's really bad. So here I am with this intention, and uh, it's doing this koan practice. So we were going, it was crazy. So hopefully good in the end. But so, so we were doing these sessions that was, they were very intense. You know, you get up at three o'clock in the morning, you sit all day, you go to bed at nine or 9.30. But if you're a good monk, and a really good monk, then you sit yaza. So then you should sit till 10 or 11 at night. And then you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning again. And then, 
And then you see the, the Zen master three times a day and you're doing this koan practice. And koan, the short and simple of it is you're given this question and you go in to see the Zen master and you're there to embody or manifest your understanding of reality. It's a lot of pressure. You've got to do this four times a day. <laughs> and of course, I'm at it for probably the first year. And I'm really pushing myself, which they like in Renzai Zen. It's really this... Um, they say, and if you're really doing Zen, you either go crazy, you collapse, or you wake up. <laughs> I think I got a lot of the collapse and the uh, going crazy. So, <laughs> so here I am, and uh, it was probably towards the end of one of these seven-day intense sessions, and I remember going in and just giving it my all to to embody this koan, and coming out, and uh, and the Zen master was always skillful of. Almost, I don't know how he did I still don't know how he does it, but almost showing you this mirror of what's going on. And somehow the way he rang the bell or something that he did, I saw it all, where I just saw how much, literally probably for about a year, I was just running myself into a wall trying to become perfect. It was one of the most crushing moments in my spiritual practice. Um, I remember sitting, sitting on the cushion and just sobbing during the sits, feeling like uh, really my life had come to nothing since I'd spent so much time doing this. Uh, it was horrible. It was not only horrible, it was embarrassing. Because everybody's having a hard time in there. And I'm the one who's taking it seriously. <laughs> so, so <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> Please don't do this. <laughs> but your mind might be like mine, hopefully not as crazy. Um, but it, it can, the thing is, is that this can begin to percolate into our meditation practice. And I want to share with you a, um, just a couple passages from this article by Jack Engler called Promises and Perils. It's a, it's a wonderful essay. It's actually an essay we did a study group on in Santa Fe. It's good, wasn't in the lane. And it was really revealing about some of the things that can underlie our spiritual practice that are important just to see. And this is how he begins the essay. He says, There is a discovery we Western practitioners of Buddhism have come to, somewhat reluctantly, as we have gained more experience in practice, particularly meditation practice. What first drew us and may continue to draw us was Buddhism's promise of liberation from suffering and from the painful sense of incompleteness and, limit, and limited satisfaction in life. And most of us were not disappointed. So I just want to point out here, you know, we come to practice because of this suffering, all these, the, these, these ways that we suffer. And for those of you in practicing, you know the kind of freedom that's in your life now, that there's been some kind of change. And so, so he really wants to affirm that. We did find a path and a liberation in this practice of the Buddha Dharma that we have not found anywhere else. This is why we continue to practice. So he's just affirming, yeah, we do find liberation here. But here's the big but. But as time has gone on, we have discovered something else about practice. It is not immune from our personal history, our character, our inner conflicts, and our defensive styles. Isn't that a bummer? I just want to point that out. 
just as with psychotherapy and other healing interventions, we are learning that vipassana, or zazen, which is meditation and zen, or tonglen, or metta, the whole range of Buddhist practices, in fact, can be undertaken in ways that are directly opposed to their purpose and design. This most radical agent for personal transformation can be used unwittingly to prevent genuine transformation. So he goes on. So do you hear what he's saying here? That what can underline, underlie our motivation for practice can be quite unskillful. And what I'm pointing out, what can motivate it is our sense of lack. I'm going to do this and then I'm going to be perfect. I'm going to do this and then I get to be somebody other than who I am. Thank God. So he points out these unskillful motivations and I'm just going to share with you the, the first one. Again, you might be able to relate to it. So this is the first kind of unskillful motivation. It would be a quest for perfection and invulnerability. Enlightenment can be imagined as a heaven-sent embodiment of a core Western narcissistic ideal, a state of personal perfection from which all our badness, all our faults and defilements have been expelled in a state in which we finally become self-sufficient, not needing anyone or anything above criticism and reproach, and above all, immune to further hurts or disappointments. Practice can be motivated in part by the secret wish to be special, if not superior. You hearing this? This ideal that, boy, if I practice enough, then I'll have perfection, and then, then I'll be rid of all my, my faults and my defilements. I won't need anyone. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> And I won't need anything. And, and I will be so above criticism and reproach. And, and I'll be completely immune to hurts and disappointments. That's the enlightenment I want. <laughs> Have you noticed that desire? That might be underlying our practice. And actually, we're talking about something different, what Eric and I have been, been sharing with you. We're talking about cultivating awareness and acceptance. That's all. When we really are just cultivating awareness and acceptance, it's not buying into that story. When it arises, we see that it's just a story. Oh, there's that story again. Oh, there's judging. We're just seeing it for what it is. And then we come back and engage in this practice of being aware, bringing the mind back, sustaining that awareness, and also having some kindness there. Different about, than about trying to become perfect or trying to become somebody other than who I am right now. There's a big story that can be there. So how do we deal with this? One is, and you might not like this because it's the same old thing that we always talk about, you just need to be aware and be kind. <laughs> There's something that's not very satisfying about that. Um, but it really is true. <laughs> but I'll say some more things just to entertain you. Because <laughs> I don't like it either sometimes when I hear that. 
So there are some things that you can add, though, to this quality of awareness and acceptance that you might find helpful. And uh, so I, I want to share with you some things. And actually, some of these things are going to come from um, the Zen tradition as well, which I, I feel like can be helpful. Well, one is I want to start with a story. And it's, by, uh, it's about this author, Joseph Heller. Some of you probably know Joseph Heller. He wrote Catch-22. And supposedly he was at this party, this cocktail party. And somebody came up to him, his friend came up to him and said, Yo, Joe, do you see that guy over there? He's a hedge fund manager. And last year he made more money than you did from all the books that you've written together. Just, just actually it was in one day he made more money. And uh, Joseph said to him, yeah, but there's one thing that I have that he doesn't have. And uh, his friend said, well, what's that, Joe? He says, enough. (laughs) One thing we can begin to cultivate is that we have enough. This moment right now is actually enough. This is really important because have you noticed how we have the idea that this moment is not enough? It actually is. There's a poem by David White entitled Enough. It says, Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now. Can we cultivate that sense of enough in our practice? It's something that you can literally do in the sense of when you start your day, maybe that's one of the intentions that you have for the day. Can I have a sense that this moment is enough? And just coming back to that, because it fits so well with awareness and acceptance. Because you might notice when you have a quality that this moment is enough, that awareness and acceptance is there. So I want to take this one step further. This is from the Zen Master Dogen. This is from a, a, a fascicle or an essay of his called Uji, which is uh, it's usually translated for the time being. It's about time. And he says, each moment is all being, is the entire world. Reflect now whether any being or any world is left out of the present moment. It's a big statement. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying that actually if we were to touch this moment directly and truly, really be aware of it and truly accept it, we'll see that nothing's left out from this moment. So that means actually this moment, we don't have to add anything to this moment. And this moment that's happening right now, we don't have to subtract anything. Sometimes you can get a sense of that when you begin to sink into this practice. 
So he says when we really touch the moment, we see that there's nothing lacking. There's not a sense of lack coming from this very moment. If this is true, what begins to arise with this, what we begin to realize, again, something that you can incorporate in your practice is that each moment is just as significant as every other moment. So that means walking out the door or brushing your teeth or going to the bathroom is just as significant as the moment of sitting on your cushion here or doing formal walking meditation. But have you noticed that we have these minds that says, well, this moment, this moment when I'm sitting on my cushion is much more significant than when I'm brushing my teeth. That has much more significance. But Dogen is challenging us when we believe that. He's saying that that's not the case. Each moment is significant as the other moment. So you might want to see what it's like to cultivate that, to see that every moment is significant as every other moment. And again, I want to point out, this is fitting into this practice of awareness and acceptance. This is what we're doing. Cultivating that can help cultivate awareness and acceptance. So I'll I'll come back to that a little bit later, this, this idea that each moment is significant as every other moment and that we don't need to subtract anything from this moment and we don't need to add anything because I want to bring it into the world of being responsive and compassionate in this world. But I want to mention two more things that I have found helpful uh, for, for this practice. And for also for undercutting, for, for not believing the story around the sense of lack that we can get caught by and entangled in so easily. Another helpful view that's been helpful for me is, uh, is, is a, a view that, that um, or a teaching that comes from Pure Land Buddhism. Pure Land Buddhism is, is quite different from Vipassana, but I think there's teachings in it that, that I find quite co- compelling. Their notion is is that in order to wake up, one of the things that we have to realize in order to fully awaken, to free these hearts, is that we're foolish beings. This is a very important teaching. And from their point of view, and I'll I'll fit it in because sometimes this can get confused with Christianity, their point of view is is that um, this idea that I can wake up is a very foolish idea. And that's an idea of a foolish being because that's self-power is what they call it, that I can do this all on my own. And from their story, and I think it has a mythological depth to it, is that it's only through the compassionate action of Amida Buddha that, that, that one can wake up, which is other power. In the end, they say, and this is the beauty of it, that self-power is nothing other than other power. So it's important to see that Amida Buddha is not something outside of us. But they say that the, 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 the warm compassion of Amida Buddha, it's, it's like we're ice. And, and with the warm compassion of Amida Buddha, Amida Buddha's warm compassion melts that ice into water. And the water becomes free, fluid, and flowing. 
I find this a compelling story. One, and I'll also say a little bit more about the foolish being aspect as well, but one is, is that the quality of water is not different. It's just a bit frozen. So it's like we're a bit frozen and stuck. And then with the warmth of compassion, there's a quality of fluidity and flow in our lives. So in essence, in essence, the water is pure. So I want to point out that this is a different process than trying to become something other than what I am. There's nothing wrong with what I am. It just needs to be loosened up a bit. It needs to flow. The other important thing about, I think, having this quality of Amida Buddha or compassion is some of you might have experienced this around loving kindness or compassion is sometimes you can get the feeling of, wow, this doesn't feel like it's coming from me, but somehow moving through me. So sometimes a story like that resonates with that. But for me, it's been important to realize that I'm a foolish being. If I'm going to have any kind of identity, and if my mind's always creating crazy identities, this is the one I want to investigate. It's, it's so important. It keeps things real. Well, one story about that, which I feel exemplifies this. I'd, uh, I'd done a month-long retreat last year in the um, Tibetan tradition. And I'd finished the tr- retreat, and I'd come off retreat, and I'd uh, come back home, and my partner and I had gotten this fixer-upper. There's a lot of things wrong with the house. And I remember it was the evening I got back. I was feeling... It really was a profound month. It really transformed my life in, in very significant and important ways and my spiritual practice. And I came home and uh, I was feeling good. <laughs> Maybe I'm a little more awake. <laughs> and uh, there was this broken dishwasher that we wanted to get rid of. It was, it was nasty. It had mold in it and just had to, we had to get rid of it. It didn't work. And uh, I was taking the dishwasher out and um, unscrewed it from the, the cabinets around it. And it was catching on something. And so I started playing around with it, and uh, and I was like, okay, so I really want to get this out. And I remember Robin saying, um, just be aware of the water connection. <laughs> I said, don't worry about it. You know, they make these water connections so you can pull out the dishwasher. Don't worry about it, honey. <laughs> Might have heard that one before. And so then I proceeded to get down on the ground and then put my feet right next to it so I could really crank it out of there. And so I really like ripped that thing and I got it out of there. But as I did, of course, what happened is the water line completely broke and there was water just spraying out. And um, I think both of us screamed at each other, um, turn off the water. And then we both realized that we still hadn't realized where the water turnoff was for the house. <laughs> get a bucket. Please get a bucket. So we got a bucket and then we put the hose in there and it was coming out so quickly that it just hit the bottom of it and just like made it spray out. (laughs) And luckily I remember that dishwashers are connected to the hot water. So I went to the hot water heater and turned off the water. So luckily, not more of a catastrophe. But the reason I tell you this story is to show the quality of being a foolish being. (laughs) Just... One word of caution, you don't learn anything about dishwashers from meditation. (laughs) But somehow I had this confidence. So so I want to point out about some some things about this quality of a foolish being. One is is 
it's important for me to realize that that's how I am. And it, I've appreciated it because it makes me come to terms with my imperfections and my mistakes and to be okay with them. I don't have to take myself so seriously. I can be light about these mistakes and these imperfections. I, I feel this is really important. We can get so serious about all of this that we forget that we always make mistakes and are imperfect. So you might want to cultivate that. Oh, there's a bit of foolish being here. And that it's actually a gateway to awakening. I truly believe that. And I truly see that. One other thing that I, I feel is important um, Yeah, I'll just briefly mention this. I think it's a, a difficult thing to remember, and it's, it's having the attitude that whatever is arising in your practice is the gem of your practice. It's the thing that's going to lead to the deepening of your practice. So whatever difficulties arising, that's the gateway. Can you cultivate that attitude? Whatever seems to be the hindrance is actually the gateway to the deepening of your practice. And when I mention this, you might notice that your mind might do with this what my mind does. So I hear this teaching and I say, that is so cool. I'm going to totally put that into practice. And then when I sit down and I start to plan about something at home or I start to worry about this or that, I have this feeling of like, dang it, the problem that I got actually is not the gem. <laughs> this is one of those other problems that is not the gateway to my awakening. Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> so challenge that belief and see if you can have this attitude. Whatever the problem is, really is the gateway. So I want to go back to this teaching that this teaching of, of seeing that this moment nothing needs to be added and nothing needs to be subtracted from it and the importance of seeing that. And I want to begin to connect it with the, this quality of being responsive in the world. Because I think sometimes when we hear this teaching we feel like that all that can lead to is complacency not going to motivate me to do anything in this world? How am I going to have any kind of compassionate action? How can I address a world that's suffering? How can I address my own suffering? And what I want to point out is that it really, I do feel, is at the basis of compassion. So, so what is compassion? You know, the main word that the Buddha used for compassion is this, this word karuna, which is usually translated as, as compassion. But there's another word that I'm always struck by that he also used from the, this is from the uh, Pali scriptural language. Um, and the Pali word is anukampa. And he uses it in one context of, of encouraging the monks to go out and teach for the world out of 
anokampo or, or out of compassion. And literally what anokampo means is it means to shake with or to tremble with. So it's, so it's coming face to face with suffering in a way that we're shaken by it, that we tremble with it. But we want to come to a point in our practice where we can be shaken by. I, I literally mean shaken by or moved by or are trembled when we come face to face with suffering in a way where there's still a quality of nothing needs to be added and nothing needs to be subtracted. Because what that does is it gives us a feeling of in, instead of coming face to face with suffering and saying, oh, it shouldn't be this way or it should be somewhere else, it's meeting it. And then from that meeting, that touching of suffering, there can be a skillful response. This is where I feel like skillful response arises. When we can be with something and then allowing some kind of response to arise out of that. So I touch the suffering of the world and I allow a response to arise. What's the opposite of that? Something called, I think, uh, Pemin Chodron calls this idiot compassion. And this is the case where we come face to face with suffering and, and instead of being able to be with it, we react to it. And a lot of times what happens is we, we experience suffering and we're so uncomfortable with it, with the feeling of suffering that we somehow want to get rid of it. So, we come face to face with somebody, maybe another person that's suffering, that's sad. They're grieving about something and we're uncomfortable with grief. So we try our hardest to get them to get over their grief so we won't be comfortable anymore. Or we're somebody that feels angry and we're uncomfortable with anger. So we try to figure out how to make them not angry anymore so that we feel more comfortable. In that sense, that compassion has nothing to do with the other person, has nothing to do with the suffering that we're faced with. It has to do with my own discomfort. One example of this, or one word that's used around this, of course, is codependency. We become codependent. We, we are uncomfortable with another person's suffering. We can't hold it or be with them, so we react to our own discomfort. Do you hear the distinction I'm making? This is really important. It's subtle but significant. Allowing a response to come from being with rather this, than this uncomfortable reaction that I'm having as a result of not being able to be with. I, I, I find this so important. I mean, just one example from the, the work I've, I've done in terms of the trauma work I do, I've done is I realized for me to support somebody in their healing process, that is the most key part. If, I, if I'm getting uncomfortable with their story or with the horror of it or their emotions, then what happens is then I can come in as trying to be some kind of savior rather than trying to open up a space where we can simply be with what's there. So, so what kind of responses? You might want to become curious about that. What kind of responses can arise when we come, when we, we come face to face with suffering? And I want to point out that I feel like I still act in the world when I can really cultivate that. 
For example, there's an organization outside of Flagstaff that I like to give money to. It's the, the Black Mesa Water Coalition. It's a, it's a coalition that's um, run by Navajos um, really to address um, a lot of the issues around the coal mining that's happening on the reservation there. I give money to them and I support them. Not because I have this idea that it shouldn't be this way on the reservation. But in order to support a view in the midst of that's the way it is. That's the way it is on the reservation. It's, it's complicated and tricky around the coal industry there. And I feel like it's so important to have a different perspective of coal, of energy, and how to support people on the reservation. Do you see that I can still be responsive and to hold it in a different context, but hold it in a different context when I can come to it with awareness and acceptance? Where I come to it where I'm seeing the suffering that arises from such an industry and responding rather than reacting. But, but it requires me to be with that suffering, not to avoid it. And I feel like this naturally arises out of our practice. This is the natural response, is one of compassion. So I want to end with, uh, with a question to give you. If I can find it. So... Since this has been a theme that, that Eric and I have wanted to address, I want to come back to this theme of, of um, climate change and the situation that we find ourselves in right now. And this is a passage from Thich Nhat Hanh, which I find quite moving, that I want to share with you and then connect it with what I'm speaking about. He said, One day during meditation, I was contemplating global warming, the tsunami in Southeast Asia, weather changes, and so on. And with some anguish, I asked nature this question. Nature, do you think we can rely on you? I asked the question because I know nature is intelligent. She knows how to react, sometimes violently, to reestablish balance. But I heard the answer in the form of another question. This is the, the, the question that she gave. Can I rely on you? The question was being put back to me. Can nature rely on humans? Actually, I'm going to stop there. Because I think that the question is important. Can nature... Can this earth rely on us? What would it be like to answer that question not from a sense of lack? I feel like what happens so many times around these issues is that we feel the immensity of the problem and then we get lost in, I can never do enough. And then we're just into the same old story of a sense of lack. And this practice, is, I feel, opens up a different possibility for a different kind of response. 
How would you respond to that? Can I rely on you? What would it be for the earth to rely on us? How can, what kind of relationship would that be? For me, what's important is this quality of simply being with the world, simply being with her. Again, this quality of awareness and acceptance and allowing my response to arise from that. This has been very important for me because sometimes my mind can get lost in how can I save things? And when I'm trying to save anyone or anything, a lot of times what gets perpetuated is just more suffering. Just a reminder, I want to connect it back just because I, I spoke with Eric about this. I was so moved by the story he gave us last night of being face-to-face -face with something so immense, this fire, and simply responding one moment after the next. What I was struck by about that, that, that story was it wasn't coming from this sense of lack or I can't do enough. I can never do enough. But having the clarity in the mind and heart to be able to skillfully respond. Yeah, so may these reflections allow your practice to unfold and may all beings come to liberation through uh, the efforts that we make on this retreat. Let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.